Last week we began a new sermon series entitled The Coming of a Kingdom. And we're walking through the story of 1 Samuel. In chapter 1 we found ourselves at the threshold of a transition point in the history of Israel. On the other side of Israel's exodus and their 40 year wilderness journey. The people of God finally make it to the promised land. And there's great excitement. Great expectation. It's kind of like moving into a new house. From this place, Israel was looking to Yahweh to come and to fulfill all of those promises that were formerly made to their father Abraham. That they would be a part of God's rescue operation for the world. And so naturally, there was this honeymoon phase. We've all experienced, if not in marriage, in a new job or in a new place. The people of God under Joshua's righteous leadership won great battles. They moved into the land. They experienced an unprecedented era of peace. But then as we know, reality sinks in. Israel was called to be a distinct people unto the Lord. A light for the nations. But the book of Judges that comes just before 1 Samuel tells us that they struggled to remain faithful to Yahweh. Their faith waxed and waned. And every time they got themselves in trouble, God would raise up a leader called a judge, which is kind of like a warlord in a feudalistic society that would come and rescue the people of Israel. And some of the most famous judges that you might remember from the book of Judges are Deborah, Gideon, and Samson. So the book of Judges coming just before 1 Samuel, it serves as an apologetic, a king. On the one hand, Israel wanted a king because all of their surrounding neighbors had kings and they thought that was really cool. It would be really cool to be ruled by a human king. But this also grieved the heart of God because there on Sinai he'd given, given them instructions for a tabernacle, a temple, so that he could dwell among them, so that he would be their king. Why in the world would you need a frail and finite human being to rule over you when you literally have the presence of God in your midst. Find instructions for kingship in Genesis, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Signifying that God knew that eventually Israel would in fact need a king. Here's what would be really great. If God could be Israel's king in a human body. 1 Samuel begs this question. What if you could have the best of both worlds? God as king in a human body. And of course, we get to that much later in the biblical story in the gospel accounts with Jesus. The book of Judges ends, In those days there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. And so then last week we came to 1 Samuel chapter 1 and we saw these sweeping themes that go throughout the book. Themes of longing, holiness, and kingship. And there we saw that in a small town in ancient Israel, we are introduced to a woman struggling with pregnancy. And her holy surrender unto the Lord, it's going to intersect the corruption at the temple in a performing. We begin to get the sense that renewal is on the way for Israel. But how exactly will this unfold? Hannah and her husband Elkanah miraculously give birth to a son named Samuel who Hannah dedicates to priestly ministry. And probably somewhere between the age of three and five, Hannah and Elkanah leave Samuel in the care of Eli, the high priest, 
and Samuel becomes a new son of the temple. And as we just read about in chapter 2, chapter 2 serves as the radical difference between Eli's son and this new son of the temple. It's the difference between blessing and blasphemy. So we're going to start from the end of chapter 2 and work our way back to the beginning of chapter 2 of Hannah's prayer. And we're going to look at three things this morning. This story really centers on the reality and the function of the priesthood in Israel. And even the nations, priestly calling, priestly failure, and priestly faithfulness. Priestly calling, priestly failure, and priestly faithfulness. We begin with priestly calling going all the way to the end of chapter 2. In verse 27 and 28, we read that a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, I revealed myself, myself to the family of your ancestor in Egypt when they were slaves to the house of Pharaoh. I chose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest. So there it's going back to the Exodus account recounting those instructions for the priesthood and the tabernacle. And it's here that God states states this threefold vision for the priesthood. I chose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to offer incense, and to wear an ephod before me. And I gave to the family of your ancestor all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. The calling of Eli's family was a high Eli was a descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses, Israel's first high priest. And therefore, Eli's family was the family who ministered day in and day out in the tabernacle. And with the exception of repairs made over time, it's interesting to remember that the tabernacle that Eli and his sons served in each and every day, that's the same tabernacle that was given by God at Sinai. So we go back. To Lent of this year, we looked at Exodus chapter 26. And in that passage, we kind of had a tour of the tabernacle. So I'm going to go back to some of those notes and some of those images. And just so we get a sense of what Eli and his sons were supposed to be doing, what their calling was about, we'll walk through the tabernacle. When you enter the tabernacle, you find yourself in the outer courtyard. And the reason why you came that day with you and your family was to present one of five different kinds of sacrifices unto the Lord. And these sacrifices would express your thanksgiving to God, your worship of Him, and also in the case of the sin offering, to atone for the wrongs that you had committed against God and others. And to be clear, you weren't just walking into the tabernacle and dropping off a goat or a dove and making your way out. It was more like a a pastoral counseling session that you would spend time with the priest talking about what was going on in your life and in your marriage and in your family and how life was going and what the Lord was teaching you. It was a relational conversation. The priest was spending time with the people. And in the case of this sin offering, to make atonement for sin, the families would bring this offering to the bronze altar. It was this square bronze altar in the center where these sacrifices would be made. And inside the altar was a grate or a grill where this animal would be burned up, an offering pleasing unto the Lord. And just beside that was a bronze basin. You can imagine butchering and sacrificing animals was a pretty messy job. And so God provided a washing station for the priests. And after that work was done, they would enter into the sanctuary. 
And the sanctuary was comprised of two different chambers, the exterior chamber and the interior chamber. The exterior chamber, as you walk in on the left, you would find a menorah, a candlestick made up of seven budding cups that cast light throughout the antechamber. And on the right, there was a golden table of bread, sometimes called the showbread, 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel that would be replaced every seven days. Also in that room was an altar of incense. There was always incense burning, representative of the fact and the reality that the prayers of Israel were always reaching the ear of God. And then towards the back of that exterior chamber would be a blue curtain separating the two chambers. And images of cherubim were woven into the fabric and it sparkled like stars. And each and every time it reminded the priests of that covenant that God made with Abraham, the descendants of Israel would be like stars in the sky. In the interior chamber, sometimes called the Holy of Holies, in the center you would find the Ark of the Covenant, a wooden box overlaid in gold that contained the Ten Commandments, Aaron's budding miraculous rod from the exit, also from the Exodus. And this box was covered in a caporet, a mercy seat, an atonement cover. And it was overshadowed by two golden cherubims. This is where the literal presence of God dwelt among Israel. And one time a year in the Day of Atonement, it was the calling of the high priest to enter into this holy of holies. To make an offering of sin on behalf of Israel. <clears throat> the tabernacle was a thin place. It was heaven meeting earth. A beachhead so to speak for God's dwelling among us. In fact when the gospel of John opens and Jesus comes onto the scene. The word in the Greek there that, that Jesus made his dwelling among us. Is literally he was a tent. He lived in a tent among us. Hebrews 8 tells us that the priest of the tabernacle offered worship in a sanctuary that is a sketch and shadow of the heavenly one. And it is there in heaven that Jesus ministers in the sanctuary, which is the true tent. That's fascinating. That there's something going on in heaven in Jesus' high priestly ministry that is reflective of what's going on in the tabernacle in the church. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 through 12, it tells us that when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Jesus has secured the presence of God in our life. And it's the calling of every minister and every priest in ancient Israel and still today to carry out this heavenly ministry of Jesus on earth, primarily here in worship. So that's priestly calling. Brings us secondly to priestly failure. Chapter 1 and 2 of 1 Samuel, it's noted that Elkanah and Hannah they made a pilgrimage to Shiloh each and every year. And they would arrive there at the tabernacle. And as, and as I just explained, priests like Eli would come 
and meet Hannah and her husband. And they would talk there at the bronze altar. And Hannah and Elkanah would make a sacrifice. And they would have this pastoral conversation. And after Eli had heard all about what had gone on in Hannah and Elkanah's life, he would enter into that exterior chamber of the tabernacle. And he would pray over them amidst the incense and the light of the menorah, praying on their behalf in the very presence of the Lord. And Eli, as the high priest, he would wear this vestment called the ephod. It, it kind of looked like a breastplate that a Roman soldier would wear, if you can imagine that. But it was made of fine linen and jewels. And this vestment signified that the priest represented the people of Israel unto the Lord. So the priesthood was this holy interlink between Israel's reliance on Yahweh and God's ministry amongst his people. But in chapter 2, we find out that three things have gone seriously wrong in the priesthood in Israel. Most of the time, most of the offerings that worshipers would bring to the tabernacle were shared with the priest. It was a shared meal between worshipers and the priest. The offerings of first fruits would be brought into the tabernacle to support the livelihood and the calling of the priests. This sin offering was meat that was roasted, and particularly the fat was burned unto the Lord. But we find these three things that, first of all, that the sons of Eli were stealing from the people of Israel. In verse 12, it says, now the sons of Eli were scoundrels. I mean, this sounds really, really bad. They were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord or for the duties of the priests to the people. When anyone offered sacrifice, the priest's servants would come. And while the meat was boiling, that word can also be translated roasting, with a three-pronged fork in his hand, he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. So they were stealing people's offerings from the people of Israel. They were also stealing from God. That's made clear in verse 15 and 16. Moreover, before the fat was burned, that was the part reserved specifically for the Lord, the priest's servant would come and say to the one who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And then if Israel pushed back and said, let them burn the fat first and then take whatever you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. The priests were literally stealing from God. But then in verse 22, we find out that they're abusing female servants of the temple. And the text says, now Eli was very old. He heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. There were women in Israel who volunteered to help out with the maintenance of the temple to help out with the duties of the priest. And this wasn't any sort of consensual relationship, even if we could, to be clear, this was sexual abuse. Priests taking advantage of their power and their role. In Hannah's day, the picture that we get of the priesthood is one of theft and desecration and abuse. 
And perhaps those very things have happened to you personally in your journey in the church. Maybe for others of us, we've been very close to a situation where a minister has committed these very sins. In articles, as we know, ranging from the Atlantic to Barna Research Group, we know that these are the very reasons why people have lost confidence in the church in our day, some leaving the faith altogether. 1 Samuel chapter 2 begs the question, what hope do we have in the face of such corruption among the priesthood? And that brings us finally to priestly faithfulness. Because amidst this great darkness, there was even a greater light. We remember Hannah and Elkanah, they trusted God and they trusted the priesthood. They had no idea these things were going on in the temple. They had left their son, this answer to prayer, this prized son, this prized possession in the care of Eli with all of this going on. And yet it's there with Samuel that we get this glimpse of light. Verse 18 through 19, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. He was a little boy. He was the one who was carrying out faithful ministry in the temple. A boy wearing a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. I get emotional even thinking about this picture. I was talking to Amanda, my wife, who's a trauma counselor, and she started asking me, what are those tears about? Say more. And I'm like, no, I'm not having this conversation right now. <clears throat> but it strikes deep in the soul. It seems like a cute, perhaps personal detail that Hannah made Samuel a little robe, a linen ephod, just a mom being a mom. But this is something bigger. This is some holiness is emerging from within sacrilege. God is doing this great thing. And this is the celebration that we find in verse 1 through 10 at the beginning of chapter 2. The gist of Hannah's prayer is that she's celebrating her faith in God and Him alone. It's a well-founded faith. God has silenced the proud and the arrogant. He lifts up the poor and lowly. God reveals himself as the one true king. That's the picture that we ultimately get in chapter 2. There are a number of parallels between Hannah's prayer and Mary's song, often called the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1. It's, it's easy to see how Hannah's song relates to her personally. For years she was without a child, barren and ridiculed. But God saw her distress, lifted her up, and gave her a son. But notice in chapter 2, this prayer of celebration, it comes before this tale of desecration. God's power, the very reason for us to celebrate, it preempts this account of desecration. The redemption of Hannah is the redemption of Israel. And the intersection will be Samuel, the little boy in the white robe. 
There's three takeaways that I want to leave you with about how Jesus ministers to his church now and forever. First, Jesus exposes darkness in his church. In verse 2, there is no holy one like the Lord. No one besides you, Hannah proclaims. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. With God, darkness is never hidden. It's always exposed. It's always brought into the light. It's how his holiness works. It can work no other way. God's holiness burns away the dross of sin and iniquity. And here in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, we find there's no religion to protect. There's no reputation of the priest to try to mask or uphold. It's also true for each and every one of us. Is there anything that you are trying to cover up right now that God is seeking to expose? He wants you to be free. Free in his presence. Free by his love. Christ exposes darkness in the church. Secondly, Christ preserves holiness in his church. Verse 4 and 5, the bows of the mighty are broken... But the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry are fat with spoil. There's a juxtaposition here. A reversal of fortune. The abusers in the temple will be brought low. And the broken will be made whole. Some of us have experienced great pain as a result of a corrupted priesthood. But this story tells us that we can be assured that God is rooting out sacrilege in the church and this is his grace in action. Ultimately, we find out with Eli and his sons in verse 31 that as a result of their failure as priests, they will be cut off from this calling and the death of his sons will serve as a sign that God makes good on his promise. God will not allow anyone or anything to undermine his loving ministry to us. Third, Christ faithfully ministers through his church. Christ faithfully ministers through his church. This is the glory of what we're doing here right now. Verse 10, it's the ultimate summary, the crescendo of Hannah's prayer. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Nothing will stop Jesus' ministry as it perpetually goes on in heaven and manifests itself in the church here on earth. Every obstacle of sin and death has been removed by Jesus so that he can faithfully minister to us. That's what the cross and the resurrection are all about. This is why we place our faith in him. And it's the worship at the tabernacle in ancient Israel that God wanted his people to know that their prayers are always heard and their sins are always forgiven. Do you know that today? God wants you to know that today. 
our liturgy here on Sunday morning at Oaks Parish, it's not rote religion. This isn't a musical performance. I'm not up here so we can take a little 15-second soundbite and throw it on social media. In this liturgy, the ministry of Christ is being carried out in this very moment here on earth as it is in heaven. This text reminds me of another great story, and I'll close with this by English author Graham Greene in his book, The Power and the Glory. It's the tale of the famed whiskey priest, a Catholic parish priest who was on the run in the Mexican state of Tabasco in the 1930s during a time when the Mexican government was seeking to suppress the church. Many local priests sold out to the government, but the whiskey priest stays faithful to this calling of ministry to the marginalized. There's only one problem. It's the priest and his own failings. He's nicknamed the whiskey priest for a reason. During the story, it's revealed that he's fathered a daughter out of wedlock. And he has such a problem with alcohol that at one point, he's arrested by the local police lieutenant. And the lieutenant doesn't even recognize the priest. He's so drunk. The priest is eventually caught in a trap while seeking to administer last rites to a dying parishioner. He's put to death. And the lieutenant celebrates that all the priests have been removed from the province of Tabasco. But there's one more scene in the story. A faithful Catholic woman adds the whiskey priest to a list of faithful native martyrs, even as she welcomes a new parish priest who has just arrived to town, ready to minister all over again. Priestly calling will never be undermined by priestly failing. Because ultimately we have a faithful high priest in heaven, now and forever. Let me pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you govern all things, both in heaven and on earth. Mercifully hear the supplications of your people. And in our time, grant us your peace through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit. One God forever and ever. Amen.